attributes of Jesus. That's what we've been looking at, right? Last week we saw he was the promised Messiah. We saw he was the authorized judge. We saw that he is the sovereign son. And we saw that he is the gracious master. And there's more. Matthew continues to just open just a photo, photo album of portraits of Jesus. And remember we said a portrait is, is a picture that's designed to make the main idea, the main subject pop by kind of blurring the background just enough to create that depth and focal point on that. And that's what we're looking at. We want to focus on Jesus. What is he like? Because that's the, that's the, that's the game changer, isn't it? When I see Jesus as he is truly, I will live as he is fully. I will follow him fully and faithfully, or at least I'll know where I'm to be headed. And when I don't successfully follow him, it will become obvious. And then I can repent and I can turn back to him and get back on track. And boy, do we need that. I know I do. I know I do. We all do, right? And so as we look at this, we're going to start into Matthew 12. Let's remember where we ended last week. We ended at the end of chapter 11, and Jesus, he, he, he looks at us and he commands us to do something that sounds like, not like a command, and I, and I described it kind of like a mom who sees their child and the child is so upset, they can't, you know how they can't even catch their breath? They're trying to catch their breath because they just are so upset and they're just standing there just, and, 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 and mom looks at them or the dad looks at them and says, come here. Okay, so there's that compassionate encourage, come here. But then there's also that voice of command, right? Come here. Because that parent, that mom wants to embrace that child with compassion but they're saying, come here, because they know that's where you're going to find the comfort and the peace. And that's not possible unless you come to me. And so Jesus is telling you and I, in the midst of how we feel right now, and, and that can be all over the spectrum, right? Because we've got a room full of people, we've got a, a bunch watching online, and, and they're, we're all dealing with fears and doubts and burdens in life. Maybe all of those things. And the only way to overcome them is to see Jesus and to let him rescue us, okay? Not just from hell, okay? The gospel is not just for eternal life. It's for every area of life. It brings healing to all of us, to all the areas, if we will let him, if we will respond to the command to come. I brought this, uh, these are always up here, obviously, these stools, but today I want to use it more as a prop um, because Jesus is talking about, I'll just finish verse 11, the chapter 11, come to me all who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. What is rest, okay? So if I sit on this stool, I'm resting physically because my legs aren't having to hold me up anymore, okay? And that's good. And, and there's a sense in which God calls us to that kind of rest, right? We look at creation. We see that God created the world in six days. You know what? If six literal days, I'm good with that. Six long, long, long days, I'm good with that. Just God created, okay? And he did it his way because he's Lord. And then he made another day. And it wasn't because he was tired. But he called it a day of rest. Why? To give us the pattern from day one or day zero for us. I guess it was more than that. But from the very beginning, he said, I want you to work into your life a rhythm of rest. 
because you physically need it. And then and we look in Exodus 20 and we see that that pattern is to rest from your normal work or any work where you're trying to earn. So if it's your second or third gig, doing the Sabbath. Because the Old Testament law has been, has been um, upgraded to the New Testament covenant. The Old Testament covenant um, is the foundation to the New Testament covenant. And, and there's nowhere, there's no command in the New Testament that says that you, are, you and I are to take a break on, on a Sabbath day, whether it's Saturday or Sunday. But the rhythm and the principle is in the Old Testament scriptures that we rest. Not just we take a day, that's a good thing. Take a day a week, rest, that's a good principle. But it is really, I want you to rest in everything you do all the time. I want you to work from a place of rest, not just rest from work. That's, and, and the whole idea here is Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. He is King Rest. King Rest. So let's look and see how he says it. Matthew writes, and starting in verse 1, At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. So it's the Sabbath day. So for them, that's Saturday, last day of the week. And they're walking through the grain fields. If you've ever been in the country and you've been walking from place to place, you may realize, I probably am going to be walking a lot longer if I don't take a shortcut across this field. They're doing that. They're walking through this grain field. The grain apparently is ready to harvest. The heads of the grain are there. And he says his disciples were hungry. I imagine if you follow Jesus and you have nowhere to lay your head, there are going to be times when you didn't get a meal. Or there were times when Jesus said, let's fast today. They were hungry. It was, they'd been asleep all night. They're up in the morning, so maybe they're just ready for breakfast. But it's the Sabbath, so no one's cooking breakfast. We're not working. And so it says that his disciples were hungry and began to pick some heads of grain and eat them. Okay? Just kind of think of seeds, right? You know, they're just pulling them off, stripping them off, and then they're just kind of blowing away the chaff. And then just a snack, probably Lance ones made, right? The brand Lance. That's what I'm sure what they were growing. Lance, heads of grain. When Pharisees saw this, they said to him, so the Pharisees are walking with them. They're all headed to the same place. Look. Your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. So what they're not doing, that is, so what it looks like is stealing, right? But that's not what's happening because the, the Old Testament covenant made rules about how you could, what you could pick out of someone else's field. And if you were a traveler or you were poor or needy and you just needed some food for a snack, you could pick from someone's farmland. Okay? Even after the harvest, they weren't supposed to go back and make sure they got everything. They were supposed to leave the extra It was a part of their way of dealing with poverty. The problem was they did it on the Sabbath. And that was a a big no-no for the Pharisees. They had lots and lots of rules and laws, but the Sabbath, man, breaking the Sabbath, it was big time time no-no. And so they've been pretty calm with Jesus, but they're going to come out of their skin on this episode. Jesus answers, with a pretty insulting statement. Haven't you read? Who's he talking to? Biblical scholars. No one knows the Old Testament better than the scribes and the Pharisees. And he says, haven't you read? Maybe you've heard of David, right? First Samuel 21. He's talking about a passage they could quote. And he's, haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God 
And he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. As if that wasn't enough. Or haven't you read in the law that the priests on, on Sabbath duty in the temple desecrate the Sabbath and yet are innocent? I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. If you had known what these words meant, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent, the disciples. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. What in the world is he talking about? So in in 1 Samuel 21, King Saul, the first king of Israel, is still king, and he is just gone after David one too many times. And so David running for his life and some of David's men, those loyal to him, who's the next king, they go with him. And so they're on the run immediately. They just have to drop everything and go. So they can't like build up a bunch of supplies and load up. They just got to run. And so David goes to where the tabernacle is. Okay. So David, Solomon hasn't built the temple yet. So they're still using the tabernacle that they use through the wanderings in the wilderness. And there's priests there that are doing the priestly things. And he goes there and he says, he knows there's bread at the the tabernacle. So he goes to the tabernacle and he says, I need some bread for me and my men. We're we're on a mission and we need need some supplies. Anything you can spare would be great. And the the priest says, well, I'm I'm sorry, the only bread we have is the 12 loaves of bread, the show bread that is out every day, every Sabbath, as as a sacrifice. And David says, can we have those? Now, those are just for the priests to eat after they're done. So they bake 12 loaves, one for each tribe of Israel, and they put it out, and it just sits there all day. And then at the end of the day, they clean it up, and the priests eat it. And David's like, can we have that? Knowing that the law says he can't, he asks, and the priest has a choice and a decision to make, and he chooses mercy over the sacrifice. Okay, now he doesn't know all that's happening. He trusts David, but he doesn't know that David's on the run. David doesn't tell him. We know from the story. And there's no rebuke here from Jesus that what David did was wrong. There's no hint of it. In fact, it's used as his argument to say, mercy over sacrifice is appropriate. Now, there is a great sacrifice that was made to make that mercy possible because if you read the full story, you know that the priest and his entire family were slaughtered by King Saul because he did that. Okay? Compassion costs. Mercy is costly. This is why I think we hold back sometimes. I know it's why I do because I don't want it to cost me. But Jesus says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. He's quoting, um, uh, he's quoting Hosea 6.6, 6, speaking for God. God's saying, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. In other words, it's not that God doesn't want sacrifice. It's that if you have to choose, you choose mercy every time. Right? That's love, right? Love never fails mindset. And so what is Jesus saying here he, when he says... Um, uh, there's something greater than the temple. Something greater than the temple is here. So let's think about. So he's using temple. I'm not sure why the translators used the word temple here. I mean, I'm assuming they used it because that's the original language in the Greek. But there's no temple. There's a tabernacle, and so I'm guessing these are used interchangeably to some degree. They're treating it like a temple. It's more of a. This tabernacle's been here for a while. Maybe it has some more physical to it. But the point is this: the tabernacle. Whether you're talking about the tabernacle or the temple in the Old Testament. 
Both of them symbolically represent the presence of God in the midst of his people. So think back. Maybe some of you remember some posters you've seen. There might even be some posters in the kids' wing right now of the tabernacle in the wilderness and, and it's set up. And when they set it up, the 12 tribes would camp all around it. Three, 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 three. And every, everyone was to camp in a very precise location. And it was all a picture for God to say, I dwell in the midst of my people. I dwell. I live. I, I want to tabernacle with my people. Okay? And so this idea, this word of tabernacle is this idea of dwelling. And then it makes you think of 1 John 1, 14. Starting in verse 1, in, in the beginning was the Word, and that's referring to Jesus. And the Word the word became flesh. Oh, I'm sorry, that's 14. In the, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And he was with God in the beginning. And then skip to verse 14, and it says, and the Word became flesh. That's Jesus becoming, putting on human form. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word for dwelt is the same word as tabernacled. You see, and Jesus is saying, this is better than a symbolic representation of God in the midst of her people. I am God in the midst of my people, physically, literally right now. But they didn't understand that, but, but they understand enough what is, of what he said to know this. He is claiming to be God. And if you want somebody, if you want a Jewish Pharisee to get mad enough to kill you, that's what you say. And that's why this passage ends with verse 14. But the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. That's when it became, okay, we've got one job, and that is to crucify this man. So, so, so this is, and he ends it with, in verse 8, For the Son of Man, Jesus referring to himself, is Lord of the Sabbath. Okay, who created the Sabbath? God on day 7. How can Jesus be Lord of the Sabbath unless he's God. You're saying you're God. So again, he's claiming to be God. He's doing it in such a way that a lot of people weren't catching it. His disciples still weren't catching it, but it was, but there was people catching it. And that's what got them so angry that they could crucify him. Verse nine, going on from that place, he went into their synagogue. I didn't catch this until I had to have it pointed out to me going on from that place where that was happening there in the grain fields. He went into their synagogue. You know? In other words, I know I'm going into enemy territory. Even though he's a Jew and has worshipped in this synagogue. Has healed people in this synagogue. Has healed people all over Capernaum. And a man with a shriveled hand was there. Now some people think he's a plant. Meaning somebody had to go to great lengths to get a guy with a shriveled hand there so that Jesus would have somebody to heal because they wanted to catch him healing on the Sabbath because, again, that was a terribly big no-no. We don't know. It doesn't say, so that's speculation. And a man with a shriveled hand was there looking for a reason to bring charges against Jesus. There's the reason why that's kind of cooking up in some people's minds is they're trying to set Jesus up. And Jesus has been healing everybody. It's going to be kind of hard to find somebody with a problem if you've been healing everybody. In other words, the hospitals are empty. Looking for a reason to bring charges against Jesus, they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So here we go. In front of everybody, he, they asked this question. And he said to them, Jesus did. 
if any of you, he's looking at the Pharisees, but he could be pointing to everybody in the room. If any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? It's a rhetorical question. Of course you will. (laughs) Because that that sheep's going to suffer until you do. How much more valuable is a person than a sheep? Argument from lesser to greater. Now, this is a sidebar, but in our culture and in our day, it needs to be said. Because if you go to public schools and you go to science, general science, if you go to physical science, all the way up and as far as you want to go in the sciences, you're going to hear a lot of talk about how we're all animals. People are animals, fish are animals, grasshoppers, orangutans. And, and we're not just animals, we're mammals. And we're just like the animals and we're just like the mammals. And in a lot of our movies, we like to elevate our animals so that they can talk, and we kind of think that's cool and fun and entertaining. But what is, what is being said in our culture is that we are just another animal. We're just a glorified version of a chimpanzee. And Jesus makes it very clear, how much more valuable are you in God's eyes? It doesn't mean that animals don't matter. It doesn't mean that we're not to care for creation. But it says, when at the end of the day, if you have to choose, it's no competition I created people as the pinnacle of my creation. They are greater than animals. They are greater than plants. They are greater than the angels. Okay? Because Jesus died for people, not for golden retrievers. And I like golden retrievers. He didn't die for angels, and I love angels that have got my back. But he died for people. Why? Because people were made in the image of God, and people sinned against him. So did the angels, a third of the angels. And that's, but that's not who Jesus came to die for. Jesus isn't an angel who died for angels. He is a, he is God who put on humanity and died for humanity. That's why he is the substitute for you and me on the cross. And the reason an animal couldn't be a substitute for us on the cross, it had to be a person. But again, that's not his focus. His focus is I'm Lord of the Sabbath. I'm King of rest. How much more valuable is a person than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. It is always better to practice mercy than any religious ritual. Okay? And um, if you want to find out how agreeable you are to that statement, just imagine for a second, what would we think if our church canceled a Sunday service and we decided to go do mercy ministry all over the city instead of meeting here on a Sunday? Think about that and ask yourself the question, would I be okay with that? I imagine some of you would be like, can we do that next Sunday? And imagine there's some of you who'd be like, well, that wouldn't be right. And I would challenge you based on this passage. Because mercy is greater than sacrifice. But I would add, true mercy requires sacrifice. Jesus isn't saying sacrifice is wrong. He exemplified it. We have mercy because of his sacrifice. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. I mean, just picture it. The room is pin drop quiet. The Pharisees are glaring at Jesus. Jesus is sitting or standing wherever he is. He's been asked this question. They've got this man. They've pulled out and said, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And they're looking, and they know everybody in the room knows there's a guy in there with a hand that's got... And Jesus says, stretch out your hand. He doesn't twitch. He just says, stretch out your hand. And that hand 
becomes whole just like the other one. Does that not blow your mind? Could you not believe that the kingdom of God is real if you saw somebody's hand go from shriveled to fully restored? Would that not get your attention? Of course it would get your attention. But it wouldn't get everybody's attention because some people are unable to see the mercy of God even when it's right in front of them. And these men were some of them. Now, I don't think necessarily they all were that case because we know in the, later on in the Bible that many priests and I think Pharisees trusted the Lord. They, at some point, they had to quit arguing with, with what they were seeing. Their eyes are seeing. Scripture lived out. And the promises of God exemplified. Stretch out your hand. So he stretched out his hand. It was completely restored, just as sound as the other hand. But the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill him, kill Jesus. All of that to say that he is king of rest. Are you resting? Verse 15. Aware of this, Jesus withdrew from that place. So he's aware that they're wanting to kill him. So he withdraws. He pulls back because he knows his time has not yet come. He withdraws with the disciples from that place, and a large crowd followed him. They don't know. <laughs> they know. They don't realize he's trying to hide and, and buy some time, so they follow him. And what does he do? Because of his compassion, he healed all who were ill. He warned them not to tell others about him, but of course we know that that didn't help very much. They kept telling. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. So, what we're reading happened about 2,000 years ago. The prophet Isaiah would have been another 700 years back. And he's describing the Messiah. That's what's being described here. Here is my servant, Isaiah writes. God speaking through Isaiah. Here is my servant, describing the Messiah. So already the portrait of Jesus is servant, whom I have chosen, the one I love or beloved. And by the way, you and I are all three of those. In whom I delight, that's true for you and I too, because of Jesus. I will put my spirit on him. Okay, That's another way of saying I'm going to anoint, G- I anoint this Messiah with my spirit. Okay, To anoint means to cover. Okay, If, um, if you were anointed, it was a symbolic thing that was done whenever you... Um, we're, we're trying to symbolically describe this. I'm putting authority on this person. They would put oil on their hand and they would put it on someone's head, whether they were becoming a prophet, a priest, or a king, to anoint them and say, the power, authority is being given to you. And this is a, this, this is a symbolic way of describing this actual covering that we're giving you. Well, God is doing that with the Holy Spirit for, for the Messiah. And he says, it says in Scripture that he anoints us too. I kind of get confused, and I'm genuinely confused when people say, I'm praying for the anointing on you. Because I'm like, haven't I already been anointed? I I don't understand what they mean by that. So I'm not going to criticize it because I just, they may mean something and understand it better than I. But there is an anointing that occurs when you and I trust the Lord Jesus Christ. That happens, okay? And I can't remember the reference, I'm sorry. But, um, and perhaps in Scripture it also has people being anointed again. And so maybe that's why, kind of like we're baptized by the Holy Spirit, I believe we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit at salvation, and yet God calls us to be filled. Well, why would he command us to do something that hadn't already happened unless it was different? So it's possible that there's just two different of those, two different, or more than two, 
The Spirit is anointed or put on him, and he will proclaim justice to the nations. We're seeing another portrait. This is reminiscent of the one we talked about, the authoritative judge. Here is, he is proclaiming justice, okay? Biblical justice, okay? Which is not always the same as what our culture cries out is justice. There's overlap. To the nations. Some translations say to the Gentiles. In other words, the rest of the world, not just the Jews. He's already been proclaiming justice to the Jews. That's what the Old Testament is about. They just ignored it. And so now he's going to give the rest of the world the grace and mercy and and preach and proclaim justice to the nations. He will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. Do we ever see Jesus yelling at people? Even though he's being confronted? No. He doesn't create a stir in the streets by yelling at people. He just lets his love flow through his works. And he does speak and he does debate. He speaks truth. But he's not quarreling or crying out in the streets. And then he starts to describe people. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not snuff out. Reeds, you, you know kind of know what a cattail is? If you, if you see like a marshy area, it, these are things that, that grow out of the marsh and they're, they're like really skinny bamboo is what kind of what they... And what they would do is they would cut these and use them for a variety of things, one of which is they would create writing utensils. Okay. Well, if, you got, if you're given a handful of these and one of them was, was bent up or, or broken or, or limp or whatever, you just toss it aside. Okay. But what does he say? He's saying this is symbolic of people. What does he say? The bruise, a bruised reed, he will not break. He's not going to break it and toss it. Why? Because mercy is what that bruised reed needs. He's saying that's people. We're bruised reeds. And then he uses another analogy when he says, a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. Okay? When a candle gets really low... Um, I've got, I like to burn candles when I'm, when I'm working and, um, when it gets down and, and you start to run out of wax and I try to light that wick. I can't, I never have understood why the wick quits burning even though there's, the wax is just, I'm like, well, and so I, it just kind of smokes. It doesn't really work. And so I usually just toss what's left, right? Cause I'm, it's not any good to me. But he says, uh, a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. Okay. Even when we look ready to be cast aside. He is not casting us aside. And I think sometimes when we feel weary and burdened and doubting and afraid, we feel like what he's describing here. And we think, what good am I to the Lord? And the Lord wants to say, I want to work in and through you. I'm not finished with you. And then he finishes it up and he says, that he does those things till he has brought justice through to victory. In his name, the nations will put their hope. Because of the Messiah, that's happening in our world today. And some of the places where the church is growing the fastest in our world are the places where the persecution is the greatest. Afghanistan, Iran are two that are really right now just the the church is exploding. And when I say church, I don't mean church buildings. I mean people are coming to know Christ and are sharing their faith. They're alive and that's what they're doing. And their lives are in jeopardy and they're getting arrested or sent out of the country 
because they won't be quiet about Jesus. They're willing to live for him, in their, and they're willing to die for him. Okay? They understand war. And they're learning rest. How do we go to war and be at rest? Right? How do we do that? Come all to me who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It is available to all who will come and answer the call to come to Jesus. Not come to me, not come to church, come to Jesus, the Messiah who died for you and me so that we could live and serve and love for him. That's what he calls us to. It's not complicated. It's hard. Because we want to be in control. Philippians 4, 6, and 7 says this. Don't be anxious. Another command. Sorry. Don't worry. Don't worry about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, not the holiday, present your requests to God. And here's what happens when we do those things. When we, when we come to him and we, we choose to say, I'm not going to worry anymore. I know you can't just turn it off. I understand that. But I'm going to say and, and go through the motions of, I am not going to worry about this. I am going to present my worry or whatever my issues are to God with thanksgiving. Thank you, God, that I have what I have. Describe it in detail. Thank him for the many things that he, you know, this coupling this with thanksgiving is not just a couple words that Paul just threw in for fun. It, it's part of, the, of this, I don't know if it's a formula, but you take your requests, your needs that are causing you to worry, you give him thanks that this is even possible, that he hears your prayers, that he made it possible for you to be forgiven and to live worry-free, to truly rest. He says, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God, and the results are the peace of God. What's that sound? What's the peace of God? What is that? The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding. That means it blows your mind. Okay? Okay, everybody got that emoji in your mind? The, the mind-blowing emoji, right? All right? The peace of God, which blows your mind, that surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And in Christ Jesus is essential because he's the only one that has the power to do that. But he also has the desire because he's not just all-powerful. He is compassionate because compassion flows from God's kind of love. When you and I can, can rest in that, put your full weight of faith in that, then we can begin to deal with those circumstances that are coming at us. Because you can trust God for the, and say, I'm not going to worry about them. But aren't those circumstances still there? They didn't just go away. If you have a health issue and you pray, God, I'm worried about this health issue, and he says, stop it, you're like, and you go through this prayer and you, you actually do this prayer and at the end of the prayer, you're still sick. But your mindset is totally different. Your heartbeat is totally different because you're resting in the one who could heal in the moment or he could heal at the end or in some way in between. And because he always does what's best, he either answers our prayers the way we want 
or he upgrades. Okay? I'll do either. I'm good with that. I hope you are. I hope you realize that this is God's doing his part. We have a decision to make. Are we going to do our part? And that's our part is like Jesus saying four words, right? He didn't lift a pinky. Stretch out your hand. And our part is, he's, maybe he's just saying to us, go sit down and rest in me. Actually, all he says is come. Let's pray. Lord God, there's probably not a person in this room that doesn't have a list of burdens, fears, and doubts right now that we need to surrender to you, that we need to give up to you with thanksgiving. And so, Lord, I pray that even now, in the, as we transition towards a song, Lord, I pray that we would just think, what is it that you want me to deal with? Not somebody else. They've got their, let them deal with that. What do I have to deal with? I have my stuff. You have your stuff. Let's just take it to Jesus. He says, come. He didn't say, lay it down and then come. He just said, bring it to me. Come on. Let me give you, let me wrap my arms around you and just hold you and love you because you're my beloved. You're my chosen. I died for you so you could live for me. And you can't live for me if you're not resting in me. And I want to free you from the garbage you're hanging on to. I want you to drop your suitcases of guilt or anger or whatever it is you're clinging to. Just drop it at the foot of the cross and walk away in me. Lord, I recognize, I think we we recognize that that's impossible for us to do apart from your mercy and your grace. So we ask you to give us what we need to do that. Give us the ability to humble ourselves. Give us the ability to come to you. Give us the ability to trust you to believe that you actually want to do this, this surgery on our hearts that goes deeper than any physical surgery could go. Lord, there's no way you're going to be able to unite us if we, if we hang on to this stuff. And Lord, I know we're going to walk out of here and we're going to pick some of it back up pretty quickly, I'm afraid. I pray that you would remind us that we can let go and come to you anytime. And you're ready. Your invitation and command to come is always open. May we never be too proud to approach you. But remember that it was the blood of Jesus that makes you approachable. This is why we celebrate the Lord's Supper. We remember because what you did is essential to us being able to come to you at all. So we take a piece of bread and we drink a cup of grape juice to remember the body that was tortured and the, the life that was taken, given, you, you freely gave it so that we could be free. You rescued us, even though it cost you. Mercy is costly. May we be willing to live merciful lives, even though it costs us. We know that mercy is greater than to sacrifice but we also know they're often connected. Give us the power, the courage, and the humility to meet you on your terms instead of ours. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.